Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, recovery isn't real. There are, I think, sometimes seems like an unendingly long list, but there are a number of significant things on the list of uh, pseudo-mystical attributes or characteristics of training and conditioning culture, both in the world of endurance sports, but in sports and athletics in general. And these are the kinds of things that it seems like you are always on the outside of some cult of mysteries level of understanding. And it's a need to make sense of these, interpret these, and apply these that's going to really unlock and unleash some inner potential. And that cult of mysteries norm has a lot of interesting market applications, but it also has some interesting implications in terms of how that shapes our practical experiences because they define our expectations and they define our responses to the inevitable outcomes of training, you know, fatigue, frustration, stagnation, etc. In today's episode, I want to explore and discuss the possibility that recovery doesn't really exist and that it's just a construct that has been fabricated to try to socially compensate for um, the real problem, which is bad training strategies. So, Let's get into today's episode. Recovery isn't real. All right, now there's some aspects of how we define our terminology here, and we're going to get into that. But I want to make the point right away that we're not trying to just engage in semantics because... You know, this, these kinds of conversations, discussions, arguments can devolve into that very quickly. And when people start sort of trying to shift or realign their definitions of sort of the operative concepts as they go through, it's easy to get nowhere. And so we're going to, you know, try to be clear as we go about what these different things mean. Recovery is obviously a word that we want to try to really understand and define and articulate what that concept is really well. There's different definitions for that. We're gonna to try to identify multiple of those and be clear like what we're responding to. And we also want to try to think about what is the implication um, of recovery not being real. So before we get into the kind of laying out some grounding of definitions, Let's revisit a concept that's been discussed on the podcast in the past, and I think it's a foundational concept, which is uh, how do people regard the process of training? And oftentimes, people regard training as a kind of poisoning effect, 
or view it as something with sort of an element of toxicity. And you can kind of see why, right? There could be a logical argument to this, because if you engage in a training exercise and you carry that forward, given the passage of enough time over the course of that training bout or training session or workout, you're going to break down. Fatigue will increase. Um, the body is going to start sending off symptoms. You might get thirsty. You might get overheated. You might get hungry. You might feel nauseous. Your muscles might start to hurt. And we find that these things tend to increase over time, right? And those aren't really desirable effects. And if you're trying to just feel comfortable and, and relaxed. And the sort of harder and more intensively you work, the more intensive those uh, reactions to the training stress are going to be, the more quickly you're going to get to the point where those are having an effect. And then, right, from that point, people sort of further regard training as this kind of like building up immunity, right, that, you in, that you're training because you maybe have some sort of an outcome in mind, right? And I think there are actually are a lot of people who train because they enjoy uh, training and exercising in and of itself, right? And that's an, an end in and of itself. But I also think it's true that a lot of people, even if they do enjoy training, they also have some external thing. It could be they want their body to look a certain way. Um, it could be that they want to participate in a certain kind of competitive event. It could be that they're trying to improve their ability to do something when they participate in a competitive event, right? But we're using training as something that feeds into that. And training usually is not just recreating or just doing competitions more frequently, right? Training is something that's different. And the hope is that although you're doing something that is different from just enacting the competition, that this will actually have a greater effect than just enacting the competition, right? Otherwise, we just do the competition again. You know, for example, for a long time, when uh, cross-country running, you know, was sort of becoming a normal activity, uh, you know, for people to do in, in school um, growing up. Not that, which is not to say that everybody does it, but I think it's probably about 250,000, about a quarter of a million kids in high school run cross-country every year in the United States. So, you know, there's a reasonable number of people who do that now. But for a while, it was sort of, okay, well, we go to practice and practice as you go out and you, you practice cross country. So you would take the course, which for uh, the courses now are about 5K, but, you know, the courses used to be kind of more like two-ish miles to 2.7 or 2.8 miles. And um, you would just go and you'd run the course and you would have practiced running cross country, right? And the idea is that by doing that, you're somehow going to get better at resisting that fatigue. And so you can think about that as the sort of like poisoning in the hope that you build up immunity. And in this model, right, you sort of take a dose of that poison, right, of that toxicity of the sort of damage of training. And then hopefully you recover from that dosage and then you redose. And um, the presumed or implied effect of all of this is that the body is going to build up immunity or tolerance over time so that the you know velocity or the alacrity with which whatever the competitive um, attribute that is trying to be developed or improved on through training, that that will be performed with greater proficiency. So I think a question would be, is there evidence that the body can even really resist toxicity? 
right? Is this idea that, you know, training is this sort of negative thing. And then it's in recovery that you actually get better. And so you have this back and forth relationship where you need to sort of suffer the consequences of this negative, And then you sort of compensate for that, right? We've talked about super compensation on other episodes. You compensate or super compensate. Um, and that takes the form of improvement. And then you apply another dose and, and that's the cycle of training. So if that's true, we'd want to ask, is there evidence that the body can resist toxicity? Um, and I would say that to some degree, um, yes, there's evidence that the body can resist uh, toxicity to some extent. Now, we think about how we de define toxicity. I don't think um, that, you know, if you surround somebody, um, you know, with highly radioactive substances, for example, that they're going to resist that, right? So when we define toxicity, we're saying in the sense of, of training that if we apply like stresses, right, can the body resist? So if we look at temperature, right, temperature is something that can, well, I guess basically be lethal, right, at extreme. So if the temperature is high enough or low enough, it's going to kill you. And Yet, so in that sense, we could say, well, temperature sort of is, in a sense, toxic, right, um, at a certain point. And uh, we have a capacity to improve our resistance to that. So if you, um, it's summer, right? So if you experience, right, hot temperatures um, for the first time since, you know, the end of the last summer, then you're going to, you know, I think be pretty, like, traumatized by that, right? Um, and you can sort of, in a sense, experience kind of like a poisoning type effect, right? You might vomit, right? You might be dizzy. You might pass out, right? There can be extreme responses that sort of are analogous to the idea of poison or toxicity, right? You can um, experience, at, you know, extremes, you can experience like, um, you know, internal physiological damage from, you know, extreme heat exposure, right? You can get, you can, skin can get burned, right? So there is a, to a toxicity to that, right? Um you know, example for me recently would be that, you know, going from New England um, to Kansas in June to do the unbound, the 200 mile or at unbound, you know, it wasn't, it's actually been now pretty much day to day about um, the same weather conditions as it was at unbound. And the other day I did a ride that was, you know, grant you not of that duration, but it was still two to three hours you know, at the peak heat in the day, you know, 90, really high humidity, high dew point, et cetera. And, you know, it didn't feel good, but I was resistant to that, right? I was able to go along. And that's because over the last few weeks, every day it had been warm, it had been hot, the humidity had been really high, and the dew point had been high. And I had, you know, my choices were to train in that environment or to avoid it. Um, and so by going outside to and continuing to train, I'm exposed to that environment, right? And I said, well, maybe I want to run earlier in the morning, okay? Try to avoid the heat, but the humidity is still 98%, right? It's still, you know, very intense. So then you go in, into the hottest part of the day, and now you have this ability to resist. Whereas at Unbound, the temperature really wasn't that incredible, but it was so different. It was such a shift from what had been previously um, I had been exposed to recently, I didn't have resistance to that. But whereas now I, you know, built up resistance. Okay. And now that response of resistance is, it's modest, right? It's, you can notice a difference, 
but it's modest, right? It doesn't mean that I can just sort of adapt to feeling as comfortable in a 115 degree day as I do on a 55 degree day, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a noticeable, but ultimately still, I would say, very small modicum of resistance to that stress. And I think that the qualifier here with this is that just because the body can develop some resistance to toxicity doesn't necessarily mean that we're also talking about an improvement in performance. Because in the training model concept, the idea would be that you dose yourself with this like adverse thing, and then the body is learning to resist that adverse thing so it can better survive. Okay. And that would be great if, if that was true, but that might not necessarily be the case, um, right? That it's the body is maybe improving its ability to resist that, right? So in that case, we're saying that um, resistance to stress is not like 100% the same thing as improved performance. So resistance, we'll say, is the ability to maybe sustain X work, um, in the face of Y adversity, okay? So whereas before, maybe you might break down after 15 minutes, now maybe you can go for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or two hours or whatever, right? And that looks like improved performance, except that if you took away that adversity, you would be able to just do that performance. You might be able to do that performance actually very easily, okay? A performance improvement, which is the goal of training, I would say is different because this is the ability to improve X even as Y adversity increases. So if there's an increasing level of adversity, your performance can still be better, right? That's what that would look like, okay? And again, this is where you know you start to see how you can try to semantify what we're exploring here um, but I think that, you know, doing that sort of takes away from the goal, which is to try to make better sense of these concepts. So recovery and the way recovery is presented is contextual to um, the norm idea of training. And my suggestion is that the normal idea of training is that we're applying an adversity to the body that sort of has some sort of toxic or um, sort of pseudo toxic type type effects. At least that's how we construct the concept of training often. And that's, you know, people are so supposed to be hard and stuff like that, right? Because it's believed that that's just how it is. And then, right, we need some sort of like solution to that, right? We need to recover, right, from that poisoning, right? You know, if you get sick and you're nauseous and you throw up, right? Um, some, you know, there's some sort, oftentimes, not sometimes people vomit and immediately feel better. Like, that's great. Like the act of vomiting somehow was recovery. But other times, right, if people are sick, and then there's a period in which they don't really have their energy at their and their, you know, sort of faculties at their usual level. And there's a period of time um, where they sort of, and then they return, you return to normal, right? You wake up the next day or whatever, and you've returned to normal. And so recovery is presented in the context of training, uh, this training idea, which I think is the norm training model um, as an algorithmic component of this kind of like philosopher's stone um, led into gold equation to training. And uh, the data companies, for example, are so um, 
you know, desperately in pursuit of. And, you know, this is represented by something like whoop, right? The idea that your recovery is something that can be quantified, right? You can determine how recovered you are, right? And the implication being um, how ready are you to return to that training? And the concept then, right, to take this to its conclusion is that you want to, you know, use recovery to increase the frequency of training because the more frequently you experience those doses, like every time your belief is you're exposed to the dose, there's a compensation effect, which is leads to, creates, is improvement. As a consequence of experiencing that improvement, you're then, you know, going to get better. So the more frequently you can have that dosage, the better you're going to get. And you use recovery then to enhance this. And in this paradigm, then recovery is when improvement happens. And you can see this stuff is circulated all the time online, people constantly talking about this. Recovery is when improvement happens. You know, you, you know, you got to train hard, you got to recover hard, blah, blah, blah. But this has led to the belief, um, this sort of doctrine of recovery has led to the belief that the more you maximize recovery, the more you maximize improvement. And then you know, we said in the introduction that there's a marketing component to this. Tons of stuff is marketed to people on this basis here, right? That you can, you know, consume things, wear things, do things, all of the above, and that will enhance your ability to recover, right? And then by enhancing your recovery, you're enhancing your improvement because if recovery is where the improvement happens, if you make recovery better, you're going to improve more. I don't think that's true. And, and that's kind of one of my major points here of this episode is to refute that claim, basically, because I think it's you know misleading, um, to say the least. But I also think, frankly, even within this paradigm of, of training, of toxicity, recovery, sort of dosage to growth and immunity, growth and resistance being the same thing as growth and performance which I don't necessarily agree with, but I think even within that model, I don't think that this idea of recovery really makes sense um, because it just doesn't follow that, you know, maximizing recovery would maximize improvement. What this model is saying is that, well, it's the frequent, that really is saying that the more frequently you can train, the better you're going to get. And that's somehow been turned into this belief that, well, the more you recover, the better you recover. Um, and we always tend to equate more and better as being uh, synonyms, even though they shouldn't be. But so then people think, well, the more I recover, the better. And that's where then you get into things of people saying, well, actually, the less you train, the better you're going to be. Um, and, and people suggest to me all the time that, um, well, you know, look at this person. They train X amount and they're better than me. And that and I train this much more. Why am I not better than them? And it's that's not how this stuff works. <laughs> You know, we're not comparing, you know, everybody is not the same COD example. There's variables, there's personal lifestyle, there's activity history, there's, you know, individual response to exercise. Not everybody's hour of exercise, you know, is the same. It's, you know, more complicated than that. And, you know, what you really want to be thinking there is in the long run, if you practice more and you practice well, you'll get better than people who do not practice as much or do not and or do not practice as well. That's just what happens. Now, some people, they can get off the couch and they can 
you know, run, swim, ride, do whatever, you know, ski at a, you know, level that you may never attain no matter how much you practice. That's how it is. There's variance in the human population. You know, there's about 7 billion people out there, you know, there's a spectrum of response, right, to stimulus. That's that's what happens, right? We're not all clones of one another. Um, and so that kind of stuff doesn't necessarily provide, you know, evidence that, well, actually, you want you want to be training less. Now, the problem is, is that sometimes people do train more, and, and we call that overtraining. Uh, but overtraining, and by train more, I mean training more than is actually beneficial, of course. Um, a lot of people train more than other people, and it is beneficial. But you can get to a point where for you, uh, your more and more is going to reach a point where it's not better anymore. And people look at that and they say, well, you can't recover from session to session. And that's the problem. And it's like, well, that's kind of true, but that's also not really the issue there. And I think what people are doing is they're confusing their energetics of consciousness, of, of our conscious selves, right? You know, our consciousness is just sort of this little thing that's just sort of um, been naturally selected for and just rides along and the body and understands very little about anything except to the extent that it can learn. And it's highly gullible, <laughs> you know, and, and we've had to work collectively socially to develop institutions um, as a society to try to like engage consciousnesses of new people, young, young people um, to try to give them a chance to get that consciousness to actually be effective and useful because if you don't, your consciousness is actually like a huge liability because it will cause you to think really stupid things. And, you know, consciousness might be great um, in a, you know, very simple, small scale hunter gatherer uh, community. I'm not referring to hunter gatherer communities of today. I'm referring to hunter gatherer behavior of like a million years ago and, uh, you know, evolutionary history, right? Where it's like, you know, cave, dark, cave, scary, I'm not going to go in there kind of thing, right? Because maybe there's some predator in there that's going to rip your arms and legs off and eat your brain. And trying to address, right, you know, that is very different than address the dynamics of society and, you know, these constructs of sport and, and training. So the energetics of, of consciousness um, are not the energetics of energetics of the body, you know. So consciousness fatigue is is definitely something we can experience. It's just not necessarily, you know, always, and it's certainly not the sole factor that we want to be considering when we're thinking about, you know, what makes training, you know, something that we can now re-engage with, right? How frequently can we train? So. So with overtraining, recovery basically isn't the issue, right? To make this long point more direct here, recovery isn't the issue. It's intensity that's the issue. And that's another concept we're going to kind of continue to expand on as we go here with this particular episode. So if we can demonstrate, though, that recovery isn't real, then we can demonstrate that all of the kind of training interventions that are meant to enhance recovery are a waste of time. And right, we said that that's things you can consume, things you know you can wear, things you can do. So those would be things like stretching. Um, it could be things like sitting in buckets of ice and water. 
It could be, you know, eating particular kinds of food. It could be, you know, spending thousands of dollars on, you know, um, compression sleeves for your legs. Um, and I, I don't, to be honest, have a comprehensive list of all the kinds of recovery stuff because I don't apply it because I don't, because it's not legitimate. But like, if you look at enough um, athletic related content on the internet, your targeted ads are going to start, you know, sending you things, right? It's particular kinds of food, it's it's pills and, and powders and sort of this almost like postmodern alchemical um, stuff. And, and people, you know, eat it up sometimes literally um, because if they didn't, there wouldn't be a market for it. Right. People are going to supply that because they, there's an opportunity to sell it and, and make some money. Um, but just because people are willing to buy something doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's a good idea. Right. Because our consciousness, we're saying, is a really limited mechanism to make sense of this stuff. Fortunately, we here at the Black Cats Run podcast are, are here to open up the door to a little bit greater levels of enlightenment and probably save people. Um, some money and some time and some frustration. And in addition to that, I think you're going to be, you're going to be more successful athletically if you stop trying to recover. So when we're considering recovery a little bit more, right, we've kind of outlined the, outlined the premise of this, the world in which this sort of resides in its place in that. Um, let's first remember that words are the efficient conveyance of ideas. So a word like recovery is an efficient conveyance of an idea, right? So defining words and, and using words correctly is, is really important. It's a big part of understanding. So if you change the definition of recovery, you know, you can change the legitimacy of the argument or the point. And so let's be clear on what we're responding to here now. So recovery, let's define this as um, the period of non-training stress where the body generates adaptive gains and wherein the better the recovery is, the greater the subsequential improvement or subsequent improvement. So now I don't personally see recovery necessarily being defined in this way, but this is the kind of way in which most people are sort of using recovery um, in our current world of sports in training, in endurance sports, but also in other sports. And you can see college coaches and training staff say all the time that it's your habits, not the workout, that's the problem. Something came up on my Instagram the other day of somebody who I think was maybe like a trainer at a you know big um, university talking to athletes, and it was just a clip of them basically saying that you know the workout isn't the problem, it's your recovery. It's you know, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? How are you stretching? Are you getting in the ice bath? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I never in my entire um, athletic experience in high school or college went to the trainer once. Okay. And when I was coaching, I, I did not like go out of my way to encourage athletes to go to the trainer, right? If they wanted to go to the trainer, that, that was fine. Um, you know, if they needed you know, like band-aids or something, they went to the trainer. But my feeling was if you needed to wrap your ankle to run, then you just don't run, right? When we had, people had problems, we said don't rest. And then I felt that it was my responsibility as the coach to do my best to assign 
and design training that was going to cause athletes to not go to the trainer. Like if your athletes are going to the trainer, you're not coaching them correctly because these aren't people who get out of bed in the morning and need to go to the trainer. Um, you know, that's something that happens, but you know, I think there are some people, they almost feel that that's like an, an, an essential part of the experience that they need their bags of ice and they need to put them on everything because that's what they do. And when I was in high school and I would see guys in the locker room with their bags of ice, I sort of saw that as well. Those guys must be really getting after it. Um, but like, who knows how, to what extent they really needed that stuff. I think as people get older, um, and more mature, I think if they're putting ice on things, it's probably because they, they actually, you know, there's actually something there that they're trying to address or respond to. But I think with high school athletes, a lot of times they're doing these things because there's this sense of like, well, this is what all the cool kids are doing. So I, I need to do that too. Like people who use pre-wrap as, you know, a hair accessory, right? Like, why are you doing that? Well, because you see other people doing that and that's the cool behavior and that's what you need to do. So a lot of us unfortunately don't ever really grow out of our middle school selves, which is fine. Um, it just depends on what you were like in middle school. So no, and I would say at this point that my perspective on, um, recovery is that recovery should be a strategy to improve our ability to train. Right. But that's not the same thing as recovery being this period where you get better. And that if you improve recovery, you're going to improve your response to training. That's not true. Now, if you have, if you come, if you go from session A to the next session, session B, that could be in the afternoon, it could be the next day, it could be next week, it doesn't matter. If you go to that next session and you feel better, your consciousness has better energetics, or if you go to that next session and you perform better than you did, um, the previous session against that benchmark, or you exceed the goals for the workout by a greater degree, whatever. I mean, I, I would say the point of the goals of the workout, by the way, should be to do the goals, not to exceed them. Um, otherwise, like you're failing the workout, going over the goals is a form of failure. It's not overachievement. Um, but like that, people are going to take that to be like, oh, I recovered really well. You know, I must be getting better. And that's not true. Like I, people constantly take like single dose things. You're like, wow, I did this one big thing and now I feel good. Well, what happened after you did that one big thing? Did you basically take a week where you really didn't do much of anything because you were just like tired and lethargic? And like, again, you had used so much like consciousness sort of energy that you're, you were just kind of flat and you weren't really like feeling getting out there and, and doing it. Um, and then when you finally got back, you had enthusiasm, right? You had no no muscular fatigue, so you went well um, in that session. And you say, wow, I really recovered. So what I think you're looking for, that's what that really is, is rejuvenation, I would say. And I think rejuvenation is important, right? You want to feel rejuvenated between sessions, right? And if eating a snack helps you feel rejuvenated, if you want to run at 9 a.m. and you want to go on a second run or a bike ride at 2 p.m. well and eating a big sandwich or you know eating three bowls of cereal if that if cereal if that helps you feel better do that right that's not recovery though right that i would say that's reju rejuvenation I, I think we need to think about these things distinctly and again i hope it doesn't sound like we're playing semantics here i think that this is a real important distinction that needs to be made and 
I think though this concept, if we go back to that idea of that that trainer and you know things that people say in general um, of it's your habits, not the workout, that's the problem. That fits into the notion of the morality of self-discipline, that being a great or successful or at least an improving athlete is a reflection of the extent to which you have self-discipline and that self-discipline is the process by which you reject the temptations um, you know, in the sin, sin-inducing landscape of society, right? It's this very sort of axial age concept, uh, axial religion concept, I mean, of morality and whatnot. And, you know, so the implication is if you don't sleep enough, you know, early to bed, early to rise, you know, if you drink, um, you know, if you aren't eating correctly, right? If you're eating too many of the things that are fun to eat and not enough of the things that aren't fun to eat, right? You know, if you're not living a clean life, then you're not recovering. And that's why you're not improving. We had a presentation uh, in college um, where some folks came and, you know, it was part of the continual uh, sort of like curriculum of we need to at least be demonstrating that we're trying to get the student athletes to not constantly drink alcohol. Whereas if you weren't a student athlete, I guess it wasn't as important for you to be encouraged to not constantly drink alcohol, go figure. But as a part of this, uh, you know, presentation, they, you know, claimed that one night's binge drinking would erase uh, the entire week of training. And of course, we being the best and brightest of Bates College, we're not buying this like surprisingly convenient model because number one, Right. That's obviously totally contrived to say, well, what a coincidence that, um, you know, in the randomly socially constructed seven day week, that one night of drinking um, is going to erase everything you did in the previous week. Right. That's like designed to, you know, manipulate people. Right. By just we're just going to, you know, assert something. Right. Rather than like, where's the evidence? Right. And there was no evidence in this presentation to support these claims. The other thing is. Everybody knew um, that this wasn't the case because there were plenty of people getting faster who, you know, to be honest, you know, some of them drank three to four nights a week. So it's, you know, these kinds of claims. Right. Like there's plenty of people. Um, who don't live this clean life and still improve. But that's what's presented to us. So then you can also ask the question, right? Um, how much of this, you know, clean life narrative is really about, well, this is literally what you need to do to improve in sport, or how much of this is, well, we want, you know, people, a lot of people out there, you know, have intense moral agendas. And by that, I mean, it's important to them that they see people living their lives and comporting their lives in certain ways. And I think there's a difference between having a genuine, definable concern for somebody's health or well-being, right? If you have a friend or a family member or what, or somebody you are close to in some other way, and they are physically, genuinely unwell, if they are mentally, clearly, you know, showing signs and symptoms of mental unhealth, right? That's a reasonable point of concern. But when we look at the kind of like moralities um, that are oftentimes, you know, the case of religions, that we want people to engage in these kinds of patterns of behavior because that's what we want to see, you know, because that's arbitrarily what that norm group, 
wants or because, you know, in some other context, um, you know, that's like a that getting people to conform to that behavior facilitates that, you know, the status of a, you know, group of people in power, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that's not really the case. So I think we see some of that effect where this idea, the desire to have people comport themselves in, in certain manners and that you're manipulating people because you're implying, well, there here's this sort of reward, right? Maybe people in today's age aren't as concerned about, you know, eternal life, but maybe they're concerned about, you know, getting a varsity letter, um, being a division one athlete, you know, having more followers on Instagram on their athletic journey trademark um that you can market to that on that way right and if that's the case then that that in and of itself sort of totally discounts this recovery concept um i think a third definition of recovery as maybe as much a footnote as anything else is that recovery can also be something very simple like taking a break between work bouts you can run a 400 and then you can rest for a minute two minutes, then you can run another 400, right? This is a simpler and I think probably, you know, the most easily legitimized concept of recovery, right? Where in that case, you are improving your ability um, to do that. Because if you want to run, I don't know, let's just pick something fast. If you want to run 440 pace, okay? Uh, if you if you just, I'm going to run 440 pace until I can't, right? But if you say, I'm going to do 150 meters, at 440 pace, then I'm going to walk 100 meters, and then do another 150 meters. You're going to probably accumulate more meters of 440 pace if you break it up with rest every 150 meters than if you just try to go nonstop, right? So in that sense, right, you're improving your ability to practice, but there the recovery is making it easier to train, right? It's not that you're experiencing some improvement during that recovery, right? So that's a different concept. Okay, so let's think about how training actually works now. Because if we want to really challenge this concept of recovery and it's not real and you're wasting your time trying to recover and you're preventing yourself, I think a lot of times we prevent ourselves from practicing proficiently because we're not recovering enough, um, you know, this is going to happen. So for me, and I think based on my conversations with people, a lot of other people, there's this anxiety of well, I'm not getting after it enough, right? And if only I could get after it enough and go harder, um, I would improve more and, and I would feel better, okay? So where is the point at which improvement actually happens, right? And is that really about challenging yourself? I think to some extent, yes, um, you are sort of challenging yourself but how do we know if we're being challenged, right? Is our subjective sense of, I feel that I challenged myself. Is that actually valid? Is that actually legitimate? So um, basically, um, we can say the body exists in two different states. It can either be in homeostasis or it cannot be. And so then we can differentiate that. Um, a little bit further and, and say there's three states. We can say there's homeostasis being this sort of medium point. And then there's sort of a level of stress that you can experience. Um, and we should say also that you're always under stress. Okay. There's always some sort of demand on your body for energy to do things to survive. Okay. But when we're in homeostasis, 
that's probably like the optimal level of efficiency, right? Where we're using very little energy, right? We're really efficient at surviving and meeting the demands of that stress. And we feel as comfortable and at peace and in equilibrium, which is what homeostasis is about, um, as we're capable of. And now if you raise that stress, if you increase it or intensify it, or if you decrease it, it doesn't immediately blink you out of homeostasis, right? There's some rubber banding there. But if you raise it after a certain point, right, um, and pain would be something that really proves to you in training that you've gone out of your homeostasis, when you raise it to the point of pain, that's an example of evidence that you've really increased, um, there's an increase in stress uh, disruption, okay? And, um, you know, lethargy, right, it could be a sign at the other end, right, where there's a loss of stress disruption. Um, and so those are two kinds of disruption, loss of stress, increase of stress, and those are disruption because at that point you're now not in homeostasis, right? If you're too inactive, like you don't really feel good, right? Just like if you're working too hard, you'll stop feeling good, right? So it's not that looking for the greatest level of ease and leisure and inactivity um, is, is helpful. And that's where just because people are posting um, videos or photographs of them sitting at a beach doing nothing doesn't necessarily mean that they've achieved happiness, right? It's just that if we look at something and we're not currently feeling comfortable or at peace, um, then we might look at that and be like, man, you know, that would be great. But that's really more a reflection of that. Well, maybe we just need to bring our stress down, you know, a little bit and we're back in our homeostasis. Not that we also need to go to a beach and get on a collapsible chair and, you know, take selfies while drinking, you know, mixed drinks. So if we take this concept that we're always under stress, which is to say that the body is always demanding energy and that we can then understand that what the body wants to do is we want to use that energy efficiently. And this is like a principle of like evolutionary biology that, you know, survival is predicated on your ability to use the energy um, that you have as an organism that you draw out of your environment effectively, right? And if you, the more efficiently you do that, the more likely you are to be able to survive and then you're going to reproduce. Um, so that's going to be selected for and has been selected for over time. So homeostasis is a constant level of stress and the body has become efficient as possible in handling that stress, right? So being in homeostasis Right. That's why, again, that often means we aren't experiencing symptoms of stress. For example, we might not feel fatigued, but, you know, we're always under stress because there's always under some level of demand. Um, and that's why sitting around and doing nothing can actually create a feeling of lethargy, which is a kind of fatigue, too. Right. I mean, that's an incentive of the body to kind of get back into homeostasis. And with training, what this would mean is that, um, like if you depreciate your training too much, you actually feel worse. You don't necessarily feel better, right? Because you're not maintaining that environment that your body is in. And, and that concept of environment now, right? This is really what we're working towards understanding is that training isn't about toxicity. Training is about creating an environment. And that environment is something that calls on the body to make certain kinds of adaptive responses. So on a spectrum of scale here, you need a certain level of disruption to reach, you know, your target outcome. 
Okay, so what's the target outcome? Well, this means that you're trying to, you know, get in better shape, right? You're trying to become fitter in the hopes that your improvement in fitness will translate then into an improvement of velocity in a race. So what this means is you have to, you know, increase or or reduce stress beyond X to see a change. Now, with um, the kinds of stuff we're working towards, we're always talking about increasing stress enough to see a change because we want to see the body to experience a heightened level of demand. Okay. And as a response to that demand, we want the body to create adaptations that make it so it can be more efficient, right? So if your homeostasis is 200 watts or eight minute pace, right? You know, the hope is that, well, can you make homeostasis 230 watts? And can you make homeostasis 730 pace, right? That's the kind of progression we're looking for. And that's different from the idea that of there being toxicity, right? Because homeostasis is, is very much the opposite. And what I would suggest is, as a general rule, that you perform your best when you're in homeostasis, because that's when you're most efficient and that's you're going to use your energy most effectively. And yes, over the course of a challenging race, you might find that you are making demands beyond that. But as you initiate that race, right, you want to be initiating it from that point of homeostasis. If you're too much in lethargy, if you're too hard, working too hard immediately, um, you're not going to get that best possible result. So this also means, um, right, that the boundaries of homeostasis are defined by the point at which there's a change in physiological production. So if your body starts producing more mitochondria, for example, or if your muscles start to get bigger, then that means you reach that point. We don't need to define that point by subjectively what feels hard or easy because you can condition your consciousness to not process levels of discomfort in the same way. And I think as experienced athletes, experience, you don't have to be elite. It's just if you've done it a lot, you anneal yourself, you callous yourself, so you don't really perceive these levels of discomfort in the same way anymore, right? And you, especially in, um, you know, a lot of sports cultures teach you to really go to the point of greatest distress, right? And we've said in other episodes that it looks like that's what you should do because we just sort of like the people who can't handle that um, are sort of brushed aside by the institutions or the coaches um, or the people who serve as the gatekeepers to these activities. So all these adaptations that we're experiencing are supported through the body's expenditure of energy. You don't just make X adaptation and then have that. Your body has to keep it at that level. And that's why if you stop training or you decrease your training load, um, be that in frequency, be that in volume, you know, be that intensity. If you decrease that, you know, not a little bit, but if you decrease that too much and it doesn't all, it really doesn't take that much to start, you know, noticing this effect. Um, and this effect will be that you'll, you know, lose fitness. So, because like it, it's energy to do work, but it's also energy to make and keep for example, muscle mass. Okay. That's why if you stop lifting and you stop um, eating those same amount of calories, right, you're going to lose that muscle mass. If it didn't take energy to sustain this stuff, we would just always live at peak physical capacity and we would live forever, right? But we don't do that. That's obviously, right? People are not immortal. 
if you could correct those mechanisms, if you could identify those uh, physiochemical mechanisms and you could redirect those, then you know you would be able to have people live forever. And it's possible that people might get to that point if they you know live long enough to study this stuff long enough. We will probably not uh, benefit from immortality, though. Oh, well. Maybe they'll find a way to resurrect all of us. I digress. So when we're experiencing stress, right, at any point we're experiencing stress. If we're sitting on the couch, if we're sprinting up a hill as hard as we can, if we're in homeostasis, there's always a stress demand. And so we experience that use then of subsequent use of energy to create adaptations, right? And so the idea is that if you give the body a moderate stress, increase in stress, then the body will respond to that by saying, okay, we're in a different environment. So this is where the recovery idea, as it's popularly construed, um, is supposed to happen, right? That you recover hard, right, then becomes a strategy to supposedly enhance these adaptive responses. Right, that you're going to create this stress on the body and the body said we need to make these changes and that you by using recovery you encourage those changes to happen and you might increase the response of those changes so like what can we reason though the epigenetic response to training to be and is that something that can be enhanced okay because if this recovery concept is real then it must also be the case that we can enhance that response and i would say that you know Yes, it does seem that you can enhance your ability to perform um, to standard in the next training session. We discussed this already, right? But if you, you know, for example, having energy is what that's really about. And like things like eating and sleeping contribute to that. Um, And it's also like um, having the right goals for the next workout. If your goals are reasonable, you're going to be able to achieve them. If your goals are unreasonable, you're not going to be able to achieve them. So that metric of success is subjective to the training rubric that we bring we bring to the table for that session. So, you know, the epigenetic response, um, though, is stress-specific. You run, you can get faster at running. Why is that? Well, if you run frequently enough, and this goes back to the environment concept, is that training is changing the body's sense of its environment. Um, if you run frequently enough, then it actually becomes more energy-efficient to invest in changing your physiology. If there's a change in environment, right, in order to survive, the body needs to find a way to be the most efficient because if the more efficient the use of energy, the more likely you're going to survive. Efficiency is naturally selected for because those are the organisms that are most likely to survive to the point of reproduction and therefore efficiency traits are going to be traits that are going to be passed on, right? And we know this from using the concept of evolutionary biology. And a lot of training um, ideas can be proven or disproven as effective or impactful. If you look at it from that perspective, if you use your understanding of the concept of evolutionary biology and natural selection to make sense of this stuff. So um, like it's, it becomes more efficient to just make changes to the body that makes the running or the riding or the swimming or the skiing or the lifting or whatever the heck you're, you're looking at to make it easier to do. Because if you keep doing it, right, the body is looking for the, is weighing its options in a sense, right? And it's going to pick that epigenetic response 
um, or the epigenetic response that is most efficient is the one that's going to ultimately win out. In the short term, if you go out and you've never run, like for cyclists, uh, I, you know, who in this podcast, I've encouraged cyclists to run, um, even if it's just, you know, 30 minutes a day. Um, well, if you haven't run, you go out and you do it, it's going to suck. Why? Because your body is questioning whether or not this is necessary, right? But if you keep it up, if you go easy enough and you keep it up for a week, it will start to feel significantly more comfortable. Um, and at that point, if it's not comfortable, it's because you're running too fast. Um, but if you keep that up, it will start to feel significantly more comfortable. Okay. And that's because you've basically told the body that, well, actually, this is a, this is a consistent sort of environmental demand, right? And the body doesn't know that we live in a world of food abundance and air conditioners and video games and whatnot. The body is just like, oh, shit, like we need to adapt and, and survive. So then it will say, okay, well, we'll produce more mitochondria, right? You know, apparently this must be important because, you know, we're sending out these pain signals and we're doing this anyway. So initially it would be more efficient to just use pain to get us to stop. And then because we stop, we save energy because we're not doing it anymore. But if we keep doing it, if we sort of are, you know, that's why that pain goes away, right? You know, that, that sort of the pain of being out of shape. Um, pain, right? That doesn't mean that pain is always good in, in training. We don't seek that out, but it's true. If you haven't been running and you go out and you try to pick up running or you've had a layoff and try to get back into it, it's going to like be like really bad. Um, but then you give yourself a chance and then it feels comfortable again. And so uh, the key again is that responses allow us to survive efficiently. So will uh, cold immersion or stretching um, you know, help or enhance the epigenetic responses of training? The answer has to be no, right? Why would recovering hard help that? Sleeping and eating are important. Eating is important because that's where we get our energy from, right? And so we know we need energy to maintain homeostasis and we know we need energy to continue to maintain these things. So eating is helpful, right? But it doesn't necessarily enhance it beyond a certain point, right? We have to eat enough. And then after that point, that's it, right? And, you know, I think by and large, I don't think it really matters as much, you know, what we eat as as people think. And I'm not somebody to claim to be particularly knowledgeable, um, you know, about the specifics or the nuances of nutrition, but that's something where there's some voodoo um, at play in terms of the beliefs or the ideas that people are using there, certainly. Um, so will cold um, or stretching help or enhance? Again, we're saying no. And I repeat this to emphasize this. So because that's a stress that's unrelated to the target, right? Well, the response of stress, if you stretch enough, um, the response to the stress of stretching, if you stretch enough, the response is going to be to become more flexible, right? If you get in the cold enough, the response is going to be to have some sort of temperature resistance. Those responses are not in alignment with the kinds of responses you're trying to get from endurance sports training, okay? So that the idea that those things enhance recovery, that they are contributing to or encouraging the body to create those adaptations is wrong. And, and people have, have done stuff and, and researched where they've kind of looked at this idea of, well, what about conflicting signals? I don't, and I think the conclusion you know, has really ultimately been that like, it's not the case that if you run slowly and then you do big lift that you're going to cancel out 
that and you're going to shift it to that. So it's not like, oh no, because you got an ice bucket, you're undermining that. It's just like, it's not contributive, right? You know, you do more things, you might need more energy. But if we're looking at it from the perspective of does this stuff rationally contribute to what we're trying to do? The answer is no. And I think the reality is you can probably do those things and it might make your brain feel better if you really are persuaded and like you're at some point of basically psychodependency where it's like if I don't stretch, I feel I'm experiencing a crisis of confidence or something like that. You know, that's fine. I guess that sucks to be you. Um, I wouldn't want to be in that state, but I think some people unfortunately are. And I would encourage you to try to maybe like flexibilize your mindset. Maybe that's what needs to be stretched out there. Um, we also want to be clear and point out that not all stresses are going to lead to some sort of adaptive response, right? So like jumping off a cliff won't like cause your body to make your legs titanium, right? So it's not like you just, we're not saying that just apply a stress, change your environment and you'll get better. That becomes then, you know, dogmatic and, you know, could easily become some stupid Instagram fitness culture, you know, concept that just gets circulated and circulated, circulated. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that, to the extent that it can, the body will adapt to a change in the environment. And we also know that like adding too much stress isn't really going to help, right? And we're going to explain why that is. So, you know, the next set of questions we want to ask is, how do you know if you are recovered? And how do you link that recovery to an epigenetic response? And how do you link that to the goal of training? Well, so the goal of training is to be able to improve fitness. And improving fitness means improving your ability to perform more work at the same effort. So to do this, we want to train frequently enough that we give the correct disruption to our homeostasis. If we can do this enough, then we can improve because the efficiency principle will cause the body to adapt in the correct way. So recovery is something actually that should facilitate or improve this process. So does it make sense to say it's better to use recovery modalities. Do people who ice bath exhibit uh, lower lactate levels, you know, commensurate with more mitochondria? That would be the experiment, right? You take, you know, two groups, you'd have these groups do sort of the same workout protocol, and then you'd have one group apply ice baths and the other group do whatever. And I think that you wouldn't find that, wow, these guys, you know, their, you know, blood lactate readings are getting better so much faster. I really don't think that you would see that, but you could, you could test that, right? You would have, you would obviously want to test that to verify, but I'm suggesting that, you know, my interpretation would be to say, no, I don't think you're going to see a difference. So if you're not seeing, and if that's true, then that recovery intervention isn't enhancing the adaptations. Okay. But you know, what will enhance that is just taking enough time so that you're offloading whatever that muscular fatigue is, because it is the case that muscular fatigue definitely Fs with, you know, your lactate levels. It definitely Fs with what you can do. If you go out and you do something in the morning that's, you know, requires energy and you go out in the afternoon, like when I've been done in the winter, if I do my 17 mile run um, and then I come back in the afternoon and I try to do um, an hour or if I try to do four by, let's say four by 10 minutes at 240 watts, right? My lactate, my blood lactate will be higher in that session than it would be if I had just run for an hour in the morning. Even if I had actually run for an hour and done four by 2000 um, running in the morning, 
in my hour and then came back and did that same session, I then would have lower blood lactate. So muscular fatigue, right? Fatigue is, is what's going to affect that, right? And so recovery maybe is something that could, it doesn't, not all of these things, just because people say this is a recovery thing, doesn't mean it's going to solve the problem of fatigue, but recovery really should be understood as the decrease in fatigue, okay? Because at some point your fatigue decreases enough that you can go out and now you can do another training session with proficiency. And so like the body adapts when given frequent training stimulus, the fact that that's true means that recovery is not real, okay? So what is real is fatigue. Recovery is not real, fatigue is real. And then you recovery should really be understood as the decrease of fatigue. Recovery is not the point, the period in which the improvements happen. Okay. Um, and I think it's good to point out to athletes that after a certain point, like, you know, you've done enough, you've practiced enough. It's okay. Right. And you can wait until the next day or the next time. And it's okay. You've done enough. Cause a lot of people wonder how much is enough. Should I do more? Should I do more? Right. Um, and what we want to understand though, is that telling people that recovery is, you know, where the improvements happen is not the right way to get people to, to moderate that stuff. What you want to do is you want to demonstrate to them and say, well, this is the level at which the training is productive. Now, if you go out now and you try to do this, you can't hit that level. Ergo, it's not productive. That's why we're recovering because we're, we're just waiting for that fatigue to get fatigue to go down, right? And the concept of active recovery you know, is stupid. Um, and I've always sort of struggled in talking to people about training about, well, I guess like we sort of call these easy days recovery days, but it's like, it's not recover. If recovery is reducing fatigue, so you can go out and do more training, then it's not recovery, it's training, right? Um, you know, and people say, you know, junk miles has been another way that people have tried to differentiate this between training that is, you know, worth the time between training that's maybe at the point of diminishing return or beyond diminishing return. So when the training you do is too hard, right? Uh, the other, this is the other way we know this isn't true because when the training you do is too hard, you can't just like apply more recovery interventions and make up for that. Um, like frequency is the first criteria and then, you know, load such that it doesn't disrupt frequency. But most people are doing the opposite. They're looking at load. They're looking at intensity and then trying to do that frequently and then trying to use recovery to be able to get that to happen. And that's why the belief is that, you know, if you're not able to do the workouts, it's because you're not recovering well, because this is what has happened is it's become over time more and more this commonly held view that if you can't do the workout, it's because you're not recovering enough. That's not true. It's because the training is too hard because you could slow that thing down enough at which you could do it. So what's the issue? The issue isn't that you can't do it because you're not recovered. The issue is you're asking yourself to do something that's too hard. Now, if you could do it the other day and you can't do it now, what's the problem? Is the problem that you're not doing recovery? No, the problem is you still have fatigue. So then we can describe the fact that we still have fatigue as to say there's still more recovery to happen, which is just implying that that fatigue will come down eventually to the point where we could achieve that goal. But if it takes too long to recover to do that goal again, is that really beneficial? So I said earlier in the podcast that this episode that people like 
including myself, oftentimes worry, I'm not training hard enough. I'm not training hard enough. What I'm doing isn't effective. It's not right. It's not beneficial. So like I would say right now, um, if I run too much, if I'm basically applying too much power to my running too frequently, um, you know, train too fast, too frequently, then my legs start to suffer. And for me, the big symptom of that is, uh, for whatever reason right now is like my shins get really sore. I get shin splints. Um, but then if I back off, it, it goes away and it's tempting to try to assign that to other things, but you know, you have to look and look and look to understand the problem or understand the pattern. So, you know, the, but then what I come to understand is the issue is the fatigue. I'm just in general trying to run too fast, too often. Right. And if you bring, you can bring this back to lactate, right? Um, the aesthetic, the idealized session or schedule is not the correct schedule. And this is, as I've, this has been a topic of discussion on many episodes, but just this ties in. So very briefly, like it's hard when you're not at a certain level of fitness to have your training look like the nice workout. That's the really kind of the downside of, you know, Strava and the ability to see what you are doing and what other people are doing is you might feel kind of stupid. Um, if you're running repeat 800s and 410, you know, it's like, well, that's embarrassing, right? Well, if you want them to be 310, you got to run 410. And then eventually they'll either get to 310 or they won't. But you're not going to make them and, you know, you can, yeah, you could probably go out there and force yourself to run 310. But that's not really going to do it. That's not going to get you what you want, right? And so what's your goal? Is your goal to, to create things on Strava that look the way you want, to create workouts in your training diary that look the way you want? Or is your goal to see improvement? So, you know, and this is where when you look at intervals, right? And this is why I say you bring it back to lactate, right? Um, if you're training too much over your lactate threshold, then you're going to, that's too hard, right? And you're not going to be able to do the workouts because the workouts are too hard. If you train the right amount over that, which I think in certain parts of the year should basically be almost exclusively under lactate threshold then that's good. That's how you're going to get better. Right. And you're not going to have that problem of fatigue and you're not going to, you know, be like, Oh my God, I don't know what's wrong with me. I know I should take a bucket and put the garden hose in it and put 50 pounds of ice and I should just lie in it. And that makes sense. <laughs> you know, yes, it's, I guess it's true. If something is inflamed and you numb it so much that you can't feel it, you're going to be happy because then you, now you don't have to be uncomfortable or miserable anymore. But like intervals, you know, follow that concept of like intervals should be like making training easier, right? And if training is easier, it's more effective, okay? And recovery, right, is used to justify though going faster. People say, well, intervals, here's the opportunity to go even harder. So you would use like intervals at 820 pace, before you try to run eight miles at 820 pace, okay? Like that's the progression of it. It's not, oh, I go out and I run eight miles at 820 pace and I do intervals where I go even friggin' harder. That's not what you want to do. No, yes, and I, this isn't to say um, that you can't necessarily go faster in your intervals and there's a time and a place for that. But when we're looking at this process of managing training um, and understanding like how it actually works and this concept of recovery, right? You know, intervals are something that should allow you to practice something easier, right? With greater ease, makes that practice easier and therefore more effective. So then there's two models of design flow is really where we come to is 
for some people, and this is the common model, and this is the model that relies on recovery, is you identify the intensity, you identify the volume of intensity, and you identify the frequency of intensity, and then you're applying recovery to facilitate that the push through of that, right? That that's the essential level and you need to do that. The body recovers as fast as it can though, right? It makes sense physiologically to recover, right? Like the faster you can recover, right? The better you're going to be able to survive. So the body's going to offload fatigue the best that it can, right? And that's why like telling you to eat something or telling you to take a nap, right? You know, those things tend to return our energy level better, right? Than not doing those things. But it, I think sometimes people are like, oh, I'm still tired. I wish I screwed up my recovery. <laughs> no, you screwed up your training. You know, you're only going to recover so fast, right? And the body is recovering as fast as it can. It's not like, it's not beneficial to the body to be really bad at recovering from stress, okay? So the second design model is to say, well, frequency first. How much do I need to practice? And I think twice a day, you know, even if that's 15 to 30 minutes of exercise twice a day, okay, you get want to practice twice a day. Then volume. Okay, how much time should I spend practicing when I practice? And then you say intensity. Well, how much intensity should I do, right? What should that look like? Well, first of all, it can't compromise the volume or the frequency, okay? Because the volume and the frequency, you need those two things to actually make it even possible to tell the body there's a different environment, okay? And then the other thing with the intensity is you can go further and you can say, well, not only should that not compromise or, or cause me to not be able to meet my frequency and volume goals, but it should be within lactate limitation. Because when we understand recovery is not real, what does that do? That forces us to confront the fact that we need to manage and organize our training differently. Okay? So there's a zone of adaptation, right? And, um, you know, the imagined sort of uh, recovery um, idea is like a trauma cycle. Okay? But what we actually want to do is we want to be in the zone of adaptation where we're really in training. Okay? Um, and like, you think about the example of, of doping as I think a, a reference point for this, like part of the reason why doping is effective is because like it makes us experience less fatigue so we can train and practice more frequently. That's also why like people who, who dope, like what it does is it allows you to get better because it allows you to, to do more, right? Because you're getting stronger right? Because you get more responses, you can then do better and more proficient practice. Um, and if you think about this as a concept, right, when you're thinking about, well, how do I avoid recovery? Because basically, if you need to recover, you're doing it wrong. Okay. Um, and that's why recovery isn't real. Recovery is a consequence of training incorrectly. There's a ceiling and there's a floor. Okay. And um, like, we can't, really, we can't raise the ceiling of what we can handle and we can't raise the floor of what we can handle through recovery. We can only raise that by shifting our homeostasis, right? So in between that floor and that ceiling, that's that homeostatic zone, right? And we're sort of trying to go to that upper boundary and we're trying to sort of, you know, push on that a little bit and create a little static, but we're not trying to go through that, right? And that we need to train frequently enough and apply enough sort of stress that we're sort of frequently sort of maybe disrupting or challenging that upper boundary, that ceiling of our homeostasis. But 
we don't want to go further than that. So because if we go further than that, um, then we're going to compensate negatively, right? Negative compensation where we're going to drop down below the floor to try to like reconstitute ourselves. And this sort of going over the ceiling below the floor cycle um, is I think really what that looks like. So in our, our next episode, which hopefully will be forthcoming sooner rather than later, I'm going to take this concept, take the second step with this concept of recovery isn't real. And I'm going to try to show, well, how should you actually like design training? If recovery isn't real and you don't train and then use recovery so you can continue to train, what is it that we should actually be doing? I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Um, If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, feel free to check out all of our other episodes wherever you listen to this podcast. You can also check out our Instagram page. We'll have some stuff coming out um, with some visuals related to this recovery if you want to see um, kind of what this stuff looks like if we diagram it. If you know other people who would enjoy the podcast, uh, feel free to recommend this to them. And we'll catch you next time.